Before we go to the word, I do want to take just a moment and acknowledge the passing of a great American. You, most of you have heard already that we lost our Supreme Court Justice, Antonin Scalia. Now, you're going to probably wonder, now, why are you talking about this here? Uh, it'll become clear in just a minute, but let me be clear at the outset. This is not a political statement. This is not a political arena, and I don't like bringing politics into this. Politics, tying the gospel to American politics has been a great mistake, and it gets in the way of people hearing the gospel. But what I want to acknowledge about this great American, he, he, he was a giant in our legal and our constitutional arena. And what I so highly respect about him is his view of the Constitution and his view of his role as a Supreme Court justice. And I was watching yesterday an old uh, interview with Piers Morgan. And Piers Morgan just kind of kept pressing him, you know, I think a lot of times we want the Supreme Court to rule according to what we believe. And he was very clear, because Piers Morgan would keep pressing him on particular questions that are really hot in our culture. You know, things like abortion, things like homosexuality, and so on. He kept pressing him, and he kept saying, listen, you're not understanding the point. The point is that the Constitution doesn't say anything about those things. And my role as a, as a justice is not to rule on the basis of what I personally think or believe or would like it to be. My task, our task as Supreme Court justices is to understand this document and understand what it says and what it means and then make our ruling according to what is constitutional. And I really, that, that's the kind of justices that our Supreme Court needs. That's as far as I'll get into the politics side of it. But uh, what I see there and what I respect there is so much, that is exactly the way we need to be handling the Word of God. And I think even we evangelicals can get a little loose and a little sloppy in this area where we, we find that there are things in the Bible that we not necessarily like. That's probably true for everybody. It isn't so much that, hey, I believe the Bible, whatever it says is fine. I mean, that may be true in your case and great, but I, some of us, yes, we, we find certain things that are taught in the Bible, we wish it didn't teach what it teaches, maybe. But the question is, how do we approach the Word of God? And what is our role in relationship to the Word of God? We approach the Word of God, I hope, and this is my, my heart desire is to approach the Word of God, and my responsibility is to understand what it says and teach what it says, whether I like it or not. C.S. Lewis made that comment. He said, Christianity is what it is and was what it was long before I came along, and whether I like it or not. And unfortunately, a lot of evangelicals today are approaching the Word of God when they don't like something it says. They, they try to make it say what they want it to say. I would have a lot more respect for those who, for example, don't like what the Word of God says about homosexuality, to just be honest and say, this is what it says, and I don't agree with the Bible, rather than try to make the Bible somehow say what they would like it to say. And so our approach to the Word of God is to try to be under it, not over it. It says what it says, and we want to be faithful to it and honor it and acknowledge that our role as teachers of the Word of God is not to interpret it to suit the, the current cultural mood or our own personal desire. It's to acknowledge what it says 
And we then we're faced with a choice. We're either going to differ with it and decide we, we're not going to feel obligated to certain parts of the Bible that we don't like, or we're going to submit to God's word and acknowledge that regardless of our own personal tastes or our own personal persuasions, the word of God is what it is. And it, because of who it comes from, we bow and we say, yes, Lord. So that's the approach our justice took to the Constitution. That's the approach we want to take to the Word of God. Let's pray now. Father, we pray for both Rob and Sean and other, other members of Sean's family that are also sick with the flu this morning. Rob in his throat, he's up here playing. It's kind of cool to see him back there on his guitar. We expect to hear some ripping leads later on. Um, Father, we... We know a lot of people are getting these bugs, and some of them are kind of nasty this year and can hang on and really put you down for a stretch. And we do ask you'll heal quickly. We want Sean and Rob to be 100% next week and able to fulfill their, their roles, their uh, responsibilities among us. Uh, so just be with them today and all those that are sick among us and not able to be with us this morning. And, now, Father, we want to talk about, again, what it means to be your people, what it means to be the body of Christ in the world and together. And so help us and direct us. And we just place all of this in the hands of your spirit and ask your spirit to decide what should be said and decide uh, working to, to open ears and what will be heard and, and the hearts that you want to speak to. Really, I hope all of our hearts you will speak to today. And you'll do that with power and clarity. And we'll be ready to do what we were just talking about, place ourselves under your word and be responsive and obedient to it. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as I, you know, yesterday realized, okay, time to, to kind of pitch hint here, pitch hit for Sean. Uh, pinch hit, I'll get it right. <laughs> pinch hit for Sean. <laughs> um, I was kind of thinking, well, how can I, I'm not, I don't have time to prepare the next uh, study from the Gospel of John, but how can I relate it to something that's been happening? I, I originally was thinking perhaps I could do something in the book of Hebrews. We talked last week about the witnesses to Jesus, why we should believe his claims, and one of those is the scriptures. And we could have talked about, I was thinking about possibly talking about how the book of Hebrews very powerfully goes back to the Old Testament and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of those things, but, but what I finally decided on was I've been urging you and encouraging you the last couple of weeks to be in a community group if you're not. And so I thought it'd be a good time for us to talk about community groups, building community, being together, life on life, what's that, what that's all about, why that is so important, why we stress that, and what that will look like, and, and we continue to give you a basis for for really understanding why you need to be in a community group or some setting at least where you are life on life with others in the body of Christ and you're making deep commitments to them and you are really unpacking together, wrestling together, working through together life, faithful life to Jesus Christ. What we want in community groups, and I said this to you last week, our community groups are not just a program of the church. We don't even like to think, the, think of them programmatically. They are not just, we are not just a church with community groups. We want to be a church in community. We need to be a church in community. Community is not optional. 
That is the basic point this morning. Life on life Christianity is not optional. Merely attending, merely coming here on Sunday mornings, or merely being kind of loosely affiliated with an organization called a local church is not biblical Christianity. It's become far too easy in our culture for us just to be kind of attached to. It's, it's, it's one, it's one uh, category in our lives, one compartment in our compartmentalized lives. I do work here. I do family there. I do my whatever, you know, baseball or, or you know, my recreational kinds of activities there. And then I also do church over there. I have a church in the same way that I have a doctor or maybe I have a lawyer. It's, it provides certain services in my life, and I avail myself of those things as I need them. This view of the local church is so dramatically unbiblical, I want to call it heretical. <laughs> it's probably the wrong word. It's probably too strong a word, but it certainly is absolutely categorically unbiblical to think that way. So life-on-life life Christianity is not optional. The subtext this morning is a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything isn't worth anything. What I'm really talking about there, and it'll, it'll become more evident as we move through this, <clears throat> is that if we're really going to be serious about being in community together, we're going to probably have to think through our lives and whether or not our lives are ordered correctly. Because I think one of the reasons we end up in this position of treating a church as kind of a service organization, one of, the, one of those that I have in my life to provide certain services that I will avail myself of, is because we, um, we have li- we're living our lives, we are, we're ordering our lives for ourselves first. We're just thinking about what it is we want. We, we understand what it is to believe in Jesus, we understand what it is to live biblically, but essentially, if we kind of stripped it all away and we're honest, we're really living our life for our desire, for our agenda, for our purpose. And so we're working in order to provide for a certain lifestyle. And then that lifestyle makes it difficult for us to be in the body of Christ, a part of the body of Christ as we need to be. And so we kind of detach because I've got a life and I've got a lifestyle and I'm doing the things necessary to sustain that lifestyle. And I squeeze in church, over here, quotation marks, church, as I can. That's what I mean by a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything, isn't worth anything. If we really understand what it is to be a Christian, we'll recognize that the body of Christ is central to our lives, not secondary. And then we order our lives accordingly. And that may mean we have to start rearranging some of our priorities to say, wait a minute, I'm living for myself, not the kingdom of God. I mean, I remember somebody saying something about seek first the kingdom. And that's a cute older song we used to sing, you know. Um, I remember somebody saying something like, unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. So maybe I have to start rethinking how I'm living my life. See, I I think a lot of us, I know a lot of us here are going to completely, you know what I'm going to be preaching on. You know this truth already. And you know a lot of these scriptures. 
But the burden of my heart has been for decades as a, as a pastor and for myself and for, for all of us working together as the body of Christ is to try to wrestle through, well, okay, we know this. What has it got to do with anything on a day-to-day -day basis? When the rubber meets the road, is this just doctrine in my hip pocket that, you know, this is what I believe? And I can pull out my theological textbook and tell you, well, here's the doctrine of this, that, and the other thing. The doctrine of the body of Christ fits right here in this chapter. But you can't necessarily see the visible impact of that. I, the, the question for us is to wrestle through, okay, so here we are. We're Crossway Fellowship. This is what the Bible teaches. So what in the world does that have to do with what we are doing as Crossway Fellowship? How we're living, how we're doing ministry, how we're relating to each other. And that's the question I wrestle with all the time, and that's the question that I hope you wrestle with, because I don't claim to have all the answers for that. There are real challenges to living this out together here in our day and time. One of the problems with life on life, with being in real community together, is some of you live in Everett, and some of you live in Seattle. That's very different than if you just lived in a village, or you lived in a town, and you didn't have a car, everybody walked. I don't know if you realize this, at least it's true for me, cars existed when I was born. <laughs> so I think it's probably true for all of us, right? We've never known life without cars. Okay? Is that funny? No, it's good. <laughs> it is funny. Um, we have never known life without cars, and so we don't necessarily realize how radically cars have changed our lifestyle. One of the most significant and profound impacts on how people live has been the automobile. You know, what we call the suburb today did not exist until cars were plentiful and most families owned them. Didn't exist. You lived close to work. There was no other option. And now we take it for granted we can drive 20 or 30 minutes to our church. I'm putting that in quotes because some of you know. It's the wrong thing to call this building. It's also the wrong thing to call this service, but that's another, that's another day, okay? All right, well, let's get to it here. We're going to start with the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And really, I'm going to just lay a foundation here, and as I said, I know a lot of you know this, but I'm, I'm not confident that we all know it. I want to make sure we all know it. I want to bring us all up to the same speed, be on the same page together, but I also want those of you who know it to be reinvigorated, to think about it, and wrestle with, so what does that have to do with the way I am living my life and the way I'm relating to the place I call my church, or the, the people, better said, the people I call my church. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. You know, the Spirit is poured out. Peter preaches. Thousands of people are convicted and challenged, asking what they need to do, and he tells them to repent and be baptized. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, he says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42 now is this great summary statement of the initial core life of the people of Jesus Christ. You can strip away all the extra stuff. You can strip away the buildings and the youth programs and the nursery and all that kind of stuff. And here's what it, they were about. And they, what's the next word? Somebody say it out loud. They devoted. And so immediately the question I have to ask myself, now it's easier for me, I grant that. I'm, 
I'm paid for this. I mean, my life is focused on this in a different way than most of you, all of you. Well, Larry, Sean, Rob, okay? But the question we have to ask ourselves, are we devoted? That's where we're going with this this morning. Am I, we as a couple, we as a family, are we devoted to these things? They, were, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and that is why we teach the Word of God, and not just kind of what we think would be cool to talk about on Sundays and maybe draw better, better at drawing a crowd. Verse 42, and what does it say next? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, you'll notice in the ESV and maybe some other versions, it says the fellowship. Older King James and a few versions say they devoted themselves to fellowship. A fellowship is one of those problematic words in our language. It's like the word church. It's like a lot of words that we throw around. Is what in the world does it mean? We've all got notions of what fellowship is. John MacArthur once quipped that he grew up, he grew up in a pastor's home, grew up in the church. He said, I grew up thinking that fellowship was pink punch and stale cookies in the church basement. <laughs> My dad was a pastor. I can remember. We used to have Sunday night services. And from time to time, the announcement went out, tonight after the evening service, we're going to have a time of fellowship. And we would go wherever it was in that particular building into the fellowship hall, and there would be coffee and punch and cookies, usually, you know, the cheap Dry kind, that's why MacArthur called them stale, you know. And, and what would we do? We'd mill around, work the room a little bit, milling around, and we'd talk about baseball and about work and about cars and whatever, you know, you talk about. And our concept of fellowship was really some social time together. The word fellowship in the New Testament means to share or to have in common. And what it's referring to fundamentally is what you and I share and have in common. That is, we share a common life. We share a common Lord. We share a common Holy Spirit. We share a common identity as members of the body of Christ. And out of what we have in common, what we share with each other, then we share our lives. We engage. We Get real and go deep with each other. Now, you can take this verse in two different ways, and it's a technicality of Greek grammar, which isn't important this morning. It can be translated, they devoted themselves to fellowship in the sense they devoted themselves to sharing. And if you keep reading in the book of Acts, that wasn't just hanging out and talking about baseball or football. It was, it was actually selling property to meet needs. Sharing went far deeper than just social hour, coffee hour. Sharing, sharing was deep and personal and sacrificial. So you could understand this verse, they devoted themselves to that, that life of being the body of Christ together. Out of the life they share in common, they shared their lives. You can read it that way, but you can also read it as they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That is the union the commonality, the, another way of saying it would be the body of Christ, that is, to our common life, that we are something. They devoted themselves to this. 
In either way you go on it, it turns out the same way. That's the, that's the bottom line here. Either way you slice it, it amounts to the same thing in practice. It amounts to people, you and me, making real commitments to engage in each other's lives at a very deep and very real and very significant level. And remember, again, it says they devoted themselves to this. They didn't just show up on Sunday when the Seahawks were not playing at 10 a.m. They didn't just come and appreciate the music and the preaching or something. They were devoted to a life together. One version puts this, they devoted themselves to the brotherhood. That's a good paraphrase for the idea of the fellowship, the brotherhood. If you read on here in Acts chapter 2, look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. That's the idea there of the fellowship. They were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's nothing in the Word of God that says it needs to be like this permanently. This was a very initial and kind of uh, uh, special circumstances. You could even call it kind of emergency or crisis kind of footing because there were people from all over the world together. They'd been saved suddenly on the day of Pentecost. A lot of them were from out of town, so their, their means of income is in another country. And, and 3,000 plus people, they're willing now to share at a very, very costly sacrificial level as the life of the body of Christ begins. Let me just read for you. I, I wish these things were on the screen, but did not have time to produce the PowerPoint this, for this morning. But uh, Chuck Colson wrote this in his book called The Body. No term in the Christian lexicon is more abused than fellowship. To some it means the warm, affirming, hot tub religion that soothes frayed nerves and provides relief from the stresses of everyday life. Often with the best of intentions, Christians have turned this social notion of fellowship into an end in itself. For these folks, the object of the Christian life is fulfilled when brothers and sisters are secluded together away on retreat. For many others, fellowship simply means coming together for church events. Instead of happy hour at the country club or the bar down the street, they have theirs with coffee and cookies in the fellowship hall. But the word for fellowship in the New Testament Greek, that is koinonia, doesn't mean punch and cookies. It conveys something much richer. Literally, it means a communion, a participation of people together in God's grace. Now listen very carefully to these words. It describes a new community in which individuals willingly covenant to share in common, to be in submission to each other, to support one another, and bear one another's burdens, and to build each other up in relationship with the Lord. So the question again for all of us is, is that our relationship with our local church? And again, our local church, I don't mean an organization that we have joined or affiliated ourselves with. I mean a people. Think of this as a family that's the way we really need to be thinking. Have we understood 
that we devote ourselves to the fellowship or to fellowship itself in the sense that we're willingly covenanting as a new community to share in common, be in submission to each other, to support each other, to bear each other's burdens, to build each other up in relationship to the Lord. Life on life is not optional. It's not optional. That is, if you want to live biblical, New Testament, that is real Christianity. It is optional if you're content with some kind of shrunken, reduced Christianity. A Christianity that probably, even for good Bible people, means I am saved by faith in Jesus Christ. I receive eternal life. I seek to live according to what the Word of God says. I. I. No sense of we. And that's one of our problems as a culture because we're wired to think that way. All of us, me too. We're just wired to hear all of this through, oh, then I must something rather than we. The New Testament is just a we thing. It's a we reality. All right, let me unpack this a little further. Why life on life is not optional. Number one, we are spiritually joined at the hip. This is, this is now going to become the theological foundation, but don't think of it as just information or knowledge. This is spiritual truth about who you are and who I am. We are joined at the hip spiritually. We are deeply connected to each other. That's what the Word of God says. You want to know where it says it? Okay, let's go. Romans chapter 12. I meant to say earlier, we're going to have to do this sermon the old-fashioned way. You're going to have to actually look at your Bible. Okay? It's not going to be on the screen. So get your Bible handy. We're going to have to turn to these passages this time. Sorry about that. All right. Romans chapter 12. There's a lot here, and you know me. I could go for hours and hours. I took that as an encouragement to go for it. I heard that. <laughs> Romans 12. <laughs> Romans 12. In, Ro- in the book of Romans, this is where the practical part of the, of the letter starts. There's been 11 chapters of unpacking this glorious gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first and also the Greek, 116. And boy, he really unpacks that. He unpacks it in specific ways for a specific audience. And already I'm getting too long. So now as he gets to the point where he's going to take that amazing truth of all that we have in Christ and what Christ has done and who we are, and he's going to start getting down to brass tacks about, okay, what's this got to do with life? The very first thing he says in Romans 12 is, present your body a living sacrifice. How do you hear that? I, Scott Gollick, you need to do something. Well, of course you have to hear it individually. You have to hear it individually. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. You just sort of generalize it out to them. <laughs> and you don't take any responsibility for it. But notice where it goes immediately. He also talks about not being conformed or squeezed into the mold of this world, but being transformed. These are great verses. But notice as you move into verse 3, where the text goes. It always, you'll see this everywhere in the New Testament if you, if you read carefully. It instantly goes to the we, to the life on life. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, according, uh, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and look at this, individually members, what's it say? of some nebulous thing called the body of Christ? It doesn't say that. It's talking about that, but it says we are members of one another. There's a spiritual connection that joins us at the hip, spiritually. So when you present your body a living sacrifice and you are not being conformed to this world, that's going to work itself out as you engaging deeply and meaningfully with your brothers and sisters with whom you have been spiritually united. That's where it goes. And you'll see it in some other texts we're going to look at. He goes and lists in verse 6 here um, some different gifts, just encouraging people. If you have prophecy in proportion to your faith, if your gift is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then you're teaching, you know. Use your gift as, as God has measured it out to you. If you're an exhorter and so on, a contributor, a giver, one who leads, one who does acts of compassion, those kinds of things. But notice again, verse 9. You can't do the very first sentence from a distance. It's not possible. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. See how that's all wrapped together? So that when you get to the ones that you would naturally take individually, like be fervent in spirit, I can hear that very individualistically. But it's all wrapped up here in we're members of each other. Let love be genuine. Show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. All wrapped up in the life of community. Not just my personal and private life. Okay? Well, you can go on there. Let's go to the next passage. Colossians, or, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know this classic passage on the body of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. In the, in the latter part of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthian church has asked or, or concerns that they've raised, and he is now going to deal with the whole question of spiritual gifts because there's some confusion and some division about how spiritual gifts ought to be functioning in the Corinthian church. And so he comes in chapter 12 to this subject of spiritual gifts, but he very, very clearly makes this a matter of we and not I. It's the whole nature of being the body of Christ. And so you can start at verse 4. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service or ministry, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities or impacts or workings, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Look at verse 7. When you think about yourself being spiritually gifted, that is given a gift or 
some capacity to serve as a member of the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Verse 7, why were you given that? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. You can't do that from a distance. And if you are not engaging life on life, you are actually robbing the body of Christ of what God has given you to contribute to it. It's like you as a hand deciding, I don't really need to be connected. I can live my life at a distance from the rest of the body. So you as a hand are over there, and this body is deprived of the use of what God has given you because you're not employing it and engaging deeply in lives of people. Well, it goes on then in this passage. He lists some gifts and talks about them. But then this picture of the body of Christ begins to develop in verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He's talking about our human bodies here. He's using our human bodies as a picture. Just as you have a human body with lots of different members, lots of different parts, but it's all one body, Christ is that way meaning the people of Christ, joined to him by the Spirit of God, his body, are the same. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. All of us, regardless of race, religion, economic status, all were made to drink of one spirit. So verse 14 goes on to say, the body does not consist of one member but of many. Phil Miller and I made some jokes this morning about both Phil and I grew up in the, in the home of pastors. And our pastors were faithful, godly pastors of a previous generation where the pastor was kind of the do-everything kind of guy in the church. Well, this passage right here is talking very much to this point. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. And that's true of your physical body, right? It's got all kinds of different parts. And so if your foot the one literally on the end of your leg right now should say, I'm not a hand, therefore I quit. The hand gets to do all the cool stuff. I'm jealous or, well, the hand, the hand can handle that. I don't need to do anything. You just kind of decide to drop out, quit, and not be part of things. Paul is arguing, so does that make any sense? Is that rational? Of course it's not. Verse 16, same thing with the ear and the eye. If the whole body, verse 17, were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? Got this giant ear kind of cruising down the street. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? And so on it goes. Then he turns it around. Verse 21, the eye cannot say, or verse, we should pick up um, verse 19. If all were a single member, where would be the body? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So it cuts both ways. You, you're feeling like, you know, I don't really, either I don't have anything to contribute. You feel ordinary, maybe. Like, well, you know, I'm not a pastor. I can't get up and preach. Or I'm not a talented musician. Or I don't have skills to, to do various things. I don't have anything to offer. Is one way you could be feeling. Or you could just simply feel like, you know, I'm living my life and I believe in Jesus and I'm, I'm you know, 
seeking to, to live according to the word of God, but I'm just living my life. You can do it in lots of different ways, but it's the same outcome. You're detaching from the body of Christ. In this case now, it's, the, it's kind of the opposite. He flips it around and looks at it the other way around. You know what? I'm theologically trained. I've been to seminary. I got years of experience as a pastor. I don't need you. Is that biblical? I'll tell you what that is. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. And that's arrogant at its worst. So the eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, if you're keeping yourself kind of loosely affiliated with the church and you're keeping yourself at a distance, you are effectively saying, I have no need of you. On one side, you're saying, I have nothing to contribute. On the other side, you're saying, I I don't need you. And what I'm trying to, to drive at this morning is to whatever degree that still tends to lurk in your heart, even unconsciously, even though you'd never say it out loud, you don't even uh, rationally believe it, really, truly, but deep down, there's a sense in which I I don't really feel the need for. You're You're not living biblical Christianity. You're not understanding biblical Christianity. You're not even understanding who you are in Christ and in the Spirit of God. Well, it goes on, but you'll notice as it drops down here, I just want to pull one other thought out of 1 Corinthians here. As he gets down to talking about the weaker parts, and he's talking about our physical bodies still. Verse 22, he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You think, of, you think of the fragility of your vital organs, for example. That's the point. Well, you know, my liver is just a weak piece of flesh. Don't need it, right? Wrong. You start having liver trouble, you'll figure that out real fast. And then he goes on to talk about parts of the body that, that are unpresentable or private parts of our body. We treat them with greater modesty, verse 23 which the more presentable parts don't require. But God, notice this now, verse 24, right in the middle. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Hey, ladies, if someone comes to you, maybe your husband, let's say, if you're married, and compliments you on the beauty of your eyes. Your fingernails, beautifully polished, don't get jealous. You rejoice in that. You feel good. That's what he's talking about. In our physical bodies, you don't have that kind of division between the parts of the body. And that's the way Christ's body is designed. So he says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And here, and he goes on and unpacks how this should work itself out. Starts to talk about some of the spiritual gift struggles the Corinthians were having. Tongue speaking, nobody could understand what was being said. Disorder in the meeting because people were talking at the same time. Prophets were talking. Tongues speaking was going on all simultaneously out of noise and confusion. It starts to address all that. But what, as, as he starts to lead into this, what's the first thing that he talks about? Verse chapter 13. 
Love. Love. Ask yourself this question, as I have to ask myself this question. Do I love you? Do you love us? Not saying you like everything or everyone, naturally. It's not not, not the question. Not, Not do you have affection of the same degree for every person. It's not the point. The point is, do you love us? Do I love you? Do we love each other? The answer to that question has to be no if you're hanging out on the periphery disconnected. That's not I love you. You see where we're going with this? Talking about life on life is not optional. It's not one nice thing for those that are kind of into that. It's, it's what it's about. It's the way it's designed. Because we are spiritually joined at the hip, we need each other. Just like your hands and feet need heart to pump the blood and lungs to breathe the air, we need each other. And if we are really loving each other, that means we're going we're, we're to connect life on life at some place, some way, some level. Okay, well, we could spend a lot of time there, of course. Let's move on. We could trace this out in the book of Ephesians. I think for the sake of time, I'm not even going to do that. You're, you're going to love the fact that I'm just cutting stuff left and right, right out of my notes here. <laughs> Let me just review something that I've shared many times, and some of you have heard this before. But uh, in the New Testament, you find this little word in Greek. It's one word. We translate it each other or one another. And it occurs all over the place. And if you, if you just look them all up, just take out a concordance and you look them all up, and you start to create a list. It's really quite an impressive list of what we are instructed to do in regard or in respect to each other. And I'm just going to quickly read it. I wish I could had it on the screen for you today, but let me just read it. I, I came up with at least 26 of these whenever I did this some years back. Starting out, number one, we are members of each other. That's factual, okay? That's the fact we already looked at in Romans 12. We're spiritually connected at the hip is what that's about. So then, we're to love each other. Found that 14 times in the New Testament. That's my count. It could be off. But I found at least 14 times it says, in those words, love each other. And it says, be devoted to each other. Give preference to each other in honor. Have the same care for each other. Encourage each other. Comfort each other. Be hospitable to each other. Greet each other with a holy kiss. It's holy, okay? To serve each other. Build each other up. Bear each other's burdens. Admonish each other. Speak the truth to each other in love. Seek to do good to each other. Stir each other up to love and good deeds. Confess our sins to each other. Pray for each other when we're sick. Be patient, showing forbearance to each other. Accept each other as Christ accepted us. Be be of the same mind toward each other. Be kind and tenderhearted to each other. Forgive each other. Be at peace with each other. Submit to each other. Consider each other better than ourselves. And those are just text. That's what the text says. 
If you'd like that list and you'd like the references that goes with it, I'd be happy to provide that to you. But that's the nature of biblical Christianity. Life on life is not optional. We are spiritually joined at the hip. We are, we're, in, we're commanded, we're instructed, we're admonished over and over again to something with each other. And so it's not optional. Larry Crabb wrote, Community matters. That's about like saying oxygen matters. And that's as far as I'll read. I have a longer quote from him there, but that's, I think, makes the point powerfully. To say that life on life is not optional is like saying that breathing is not optional. All right, let's move to a second point. Why life on life is not optional? It is because becoming like Jesus requires it. We're spiritually joined at the hip, and if we want to grow up into the life and into the character and into the spiritual maturity that God is calling us to, we cannot do that by ourselves. Can't. You say, well, what about the person that's in Siberia in solitary confinement? That's Don't argue from exceptions here. Come on. The New Testament is very clear that we need each other to become what God is seeking to make of us. It is not something you can do in your private devotion by yourself, living your life alone, apart from the body of Christ. You need your brothers and sisters for this. If, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, where are we? The first three uh, chapters are the, are the teaching portion, the theological portion, and then chapters 4 through 6 are the practical side where he gets down to brass tacks again, where the rubber meets the road, where he starts to talk about, okay, I've told you all this grand truth, so what? What's it got to do with anything? And what's the very first thing he talks about? Do you remember? A lot of you should know this. The Ephesians, we talk about a lot, and it's a, a well-loved book. People read it over and over again often. The very first injunction when he gets practical is endeavor, be zealous to preserve the unity that the Spirit has created in you. There's nothing here about, okay, here's your individual responsibility just to be a good person and stop some sins and start some good practices this is very clearly the unpacking of what it means to be the body of Christ. But notice especially, we've, we've looked at this passage so often that some of you probably could almost quote it without even trying to memorize it. You know that in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says that Jesus gave spiritual leaders to his church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And why do the saints then, as they're equipped, do the work of ministry? In other words, you see there, it's all of us doing the work of ministry, not just pastors. Okay? And why then do all of us, as we're equipped, do this work of ministry? It's for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, who's the body of Christ? You. Me. Built up. To what? Well, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a long mouthful at the end there, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means until we're completely like Jesus. 
until we finally measure up completely to what he is. So God is in the business of taking fallen, broken people, you and me, all messed up, struggling with our junk, and making us like his son. That's what he's doing. And how is he doing that? He's doing that in lots of ways, but at the center of it is he's formed a body with spiritual leaders equipping all the members of the body, all the members of the body functioning together, connecting life on life, doing this until we get more and more like Jesus. So to be loosely connected to the body of Christ or to keep ourselves at a distance from the body of Christ, to not engage life on life, is to not have the centerpiece of God's way of making us like Jesus. Okay? And if you want to just see that reinforced a little bit more, you can drop down there, verse 15, where it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, watch this, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each part working properly. You don't have to do my part. Your neighbor doesn't have to do your part. You only have to do your part. I'm not trying to pressure you into being something. People get freaked out sometimes. My church is going to ask me to do something I don't really want to do. It's not the point. who you are and who God has made you to be and how he's gifted you, then that, that part we need. And as you do your part and we all do our part, we all grow in Christ. Well, there's a lot more that could be said here from Ephesians. It's just really full of all of this. But even if you'll just let me uh, include one other thought, from Ephesians before you leave it in chapter 5 it talks about being filled with the spirit and what is the what 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 does paul identify as the outcome of the fruit of the spirit the, the work and the filling i should say the filling of the spirit what fruits in this passage come out of being filled with the spirit verse 19 addressing one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs there's one of our little each other words there Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, two of those three are overtly, unmistakably corporate. The third one is also, but we, tend, we can hear it individualistically given our natural wiring as a culture. But the point simply is that when the Spirit is filling us, we're going to be addressing each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're going to be submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. We're also going to be giving thanks together in life and in community. All right. Why life on life is not optional. Third point I want to make is our impact in the world depends on it. Our impact in the world depends on it. One of the things, I know this is painful. It's painful for me. I know this is painful to hear, and you've heard me talk about this before. But essentially, the reputation of 
Christianity and the gospel depends on our reputation as a people. And what is our reputation in the culture? Whether you think it's fair or not, completely, I don't think all of it's fair, but some of it's real, and it's our fault. One of the biggest reasons people don't think the gospel makes any difference is because they don't see any difference in us. We look like just ordinary human beings, just squabbling and fighting and acting selfish like everybody else. The most powerful testimony, this is biblical, I'll show it in a minute. This, the most powerful testimony that all this stuff we keep talking about is actually true is us. And what people can see, not in you alone. I mean, that's true also. Like you go to work, you're there probably not with all of us. You're there by yourself. And they can see something in you, but that something is connected to a larger whole. And in us, they see it. You say, where are you getting all of this? Let me uh, just refer to Titus 2 quickly. There's two statements in Titus 2. You don't need to look this up. Just listen. But verse 5 talks about He's he's instructing us how to live. Verse 5 says, that the word of God may not be reviled. And then verse 10, same thing, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, make beautiful, like a necklace adds to the beauty, adorns a woman. We adorn the gospel. We adorn the doctrine of God. But you know these other verses very well. John 17, Jesus is praying. These are both from John. We'll come to them eventually in our study of John. Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying not only for them, but for you and me as well, those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen to this. I'm praying for the unity of my people. This, This blows my mind. First time I saw this, it blew me out of the water. So that the world may believe you sent me. You know, those two messages I preached the last couple of weeks, Jesus making these audacious claims and the evidences he offers for them, why we should believe him. Like, who do you think you are and why should we believe you? Jesus is saying people are going to get convinced of this when they look at us. Or not convinced, as the case may be. And you know John 3, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, what's that? You love each other. What makes it new is the old commandment says, love your neighbor as yourself. This one says, love each other the way I loved you. Just raises the bar, you know, out of sight. (laughs) And then what does he say about that? By this, all people will know what? That you are my disciples. Boy, what a burden, in a sense. I mean, what a conviction. What a rebuke to me. This is where I stand with you, and I say, I honestly don't know how to solve all of this. But let's understand it and embrace it and go after trying to figure out how how can we as a family, how can we become an adorning of the message of Jesus? 
So it looks real to the people who know us. It looks like it actually makes a difference in people's lives. It isn't just talk and religion and belief. That's what I would love for us to wrestle with. A lot of you remember the old song, right? They'll know we're Christians by our love. That was written in the 60s. We used to sing that one all the time. Well, I'm going to cut even more. But let me just come back to where I started. What we're asking of you who call Crossway your home or your church is that you would be engaged in community with us. That's what we're asking of you. We're exhorting you and admonishing you to. We're asking you to jump in with both feet and not stand at a distance, not simply, you know, enjoy the music and the preaching, perhaps. But say, you know, okay, I hear this, I see it, I've known it, got to live it, got to make it real. The doctrine we believe isn't worth the paper it's written on if it does not change our day-to-day real lives. And that may mean that we have to rethink how we're ordering our lives. Maybe we're making some choices that we think we've come to view them as not optional. I understand. Listen, I completely understand. I'm not trying to... To, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, discount the reality that some of you have, don't have a choice in your employment. I'm just using this as an illustration. But what if, for the sake of illustration, you are choosing to work because you are seeking a certain lifestyle, and because you're making that choice to work, to pursue that lifestyle, you can't be involved in the body of Christ. And you do have a certain amount of control over that decision. Is the kingdom of God what you're seeking first? Is your life really surrendered to Jesus and he is your highest priority? Then maybe you have to look at that and say, this lifestyle I've been pursuing is actually about me, not about the kingdom and about Jesus. And it's making it hard for me to live out some aspects of the biblical faith and Christianity. And I need to start thinking about reordering my priorities. The same thing. This is a difficult one. I totally understand this. I, we, Robert and I have three children. You know that. We raised them, and the boys played basketball. All three of them actually played basketball and did different things in their lives, just like your kids. But one of the challenges we face today is our kids have so many things going on. Again, that's not an easy call, and I'm not criticizing or judging anyone on that one. I'm just... I'm just trying to make this real and concrete for you to think through what would it mean for me perhaps to have to reorder our life and our priorities and our use of our time so that we can do this. That's the challenge piece for all of us. Another side of this is that even church itself This this is a conviction I came to very early, very young as a pastor. I was beginning to see some of these things I'm talking about this morning in the Word of God, and I was saying, you know, 
our church schedule is so busy, we can't do this. We can't do life on life. Most of what we're doing is coming to a meeting like this where most of the time we're sitting and we're listening to somebody talk. And so if you wonder sometimes, why don't we have an evening service? Like if, if some of you, especially you older ones, might think, well, that just represents compromise or laziness or not really wanting to be committed to Christ. No, 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 no. We started thinking about we have got to, when, when church, when doing church makes it impossible for us to be the church, something needs to change in the church. And I ask the question, if this is a central priority, it ought to show up in the way we structure our life and ministry together. And so, hence, be, please, in community somewhere. Join a community group if you're not. Find a, a, a group that you can be. If your schedule doesn't make uh, evening time available for you, find something during the daytime. Find, approach someone. Approach any one of us leaders to help you if you aren't finding a solution. But I, 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 I'm quite serious about this. We are deliberate in the way we're seeking to do church. And by that I mean, you know, organize and structure what we do officially as a body here in a way that reflects the biblical priorities. It doesn't just try to squeeze them into our spare time. It makes them front and center and the highest needs and priorities of our body. Church life, church life traditionally, I grew up in church. I did not like church life growing up because it was too busy and did not allow time for other things. I mean, the real stuff, the, the important stuff, often. I mean, you got to go, go to a Sunday school and then to a morning service and a youth group and an evening service and a Wednesday prayer meeting and a visitation and, and, and handing out this and going to that program and running this activity and that event. And you have no time for relationship. You have no time to plug in and be real with each other. Well, what do we want in our community groups? Let me just finish with this. We want you to plug in somewhere. And then we want you to get real and get down to the stuff. We want to create a place where you can... You can be who you really are and you can talk about the things you really need to talk about. You can get into the Word of God and wrestle with it together. You can pray deeply with each other. We're not just talking about having another Bible study where you just kind of stay up here at the surface. We're talking about real community, real life on life. Now, there's more we could say about that, but we'll save that for another time. But that's the encouragement we were making the last couple Sundays. We want you to be engaged in a community group, we want you to be engaged in community is the point, with us. If this is your place and you're locking in here, we urge you to get engaged life on life.